Welcome to Letters from Comb. I'm Dave Black, and we're going to be going over our last episode of our Navajo Ethnobotany topics, and then we'll be talking a little bit about a few other things. Got some unusual stuff today. Gamble Oak. <clears throat> That's Quercus Gambelli for you Latin aficionados, and in Navajo it's Chechil. It grows up to 25 feet in height in dense patches, and it's also known as rock plant, although I don't see that it looks like a rock. The bark of gamble oak is rough and furrowed. Gamble oak is probably the most common, yeah, gamble oak is the most common of several oak species in the Four Corners area. Its leaves are two to four inches long and deeply lobed on yellow-green leaf stems. Gamble oak grows in ponderosa or mixed conifer habitat between 4,000 and 10,000 feet, uh, often along with Utah service berry. Its flowers are green, brown, or yellow. The acorns are edible but rarely eaten. Why? Because if you just pick up an acorn and crunch on it, the tannins are going to make you sick. They're, they're, it's going to be very bitter and can make you sick. So how do you make a, an acorn edible? Well, it has to be done by leaching or boiling the tannins out of it. And it can be done easily with cold water if you know how to do it. And you can look it up on the internet. I'm not going to tell you how to do that here. Gamble oak was used to make bows and arrows, axe handles, digging sticks, weeding tools, gathering baskets, cactus pickers, cradle boards, Snowshoes, throwing sticks. Sounds like the duct tape of ethnobotany. It was also used to make a tan wool dye. For ceremonies, gamble oak was used for hoops and as an emetic and a blackening in the evil way. Medicinally, the root bark was used to decrease afterbirth pain and as a cathartic. everyone's favorite, Sacred Datura, also known as Jimson Weed, and as the Trumpet Flower, and there are a bunch of different names for it. Here the species is Datura righti, that's W-R-I-G-H-T-I-I in Latin, and in Navajo it's Chohoji. Datura is a native perennial in southeast Utah in the Four Corners area, and it grows up to five feet tall. Actually, I've got two plants outside the, the house I'm in that are both over six feet tall. Its stems and leaves are a velvety green, and its amazing, enormous, trumpet-shaped, two to four inch long snow-white flowers bloom in the summer, open in the evening, and closing in the, during the day. Datura is beautiful, of course, but it is definitely poisonous. All parts of the plant contain dangerous levels of anticholinergic tropine alkaloids. In this particular species of Datura, the roots are the most potent part. Scopalamine is the primary toxin and hyoscamine is also present. And consuming any part of that plant can lead to the symptoms. Dry mouth, hyperthermia, not hypothermia, hyperthermia. Profuse sweating, mental impairment, drowsiness, restlessness, delusions, delirium, psychosis, 
profound dilation of the pupils, all kinds of nasty things. But you know what's interesting about this very poisonous plant is that at low doses, the leaves and the seeds that ripen in the fall have been used to treat asthma and even Parkinson's disease. Some Navajos believe that if you lose something, you can eat a piece of datura and its location will come to you in a dream and you'll find it when you wake up. It's used sometimes to induce visions and trances that allow communication with the spirit for diagnosis and preparation of a chant needed for healing. And it's great with tourists. Tourists are, are just absolutely fascinated by the plant. I've spent some time with curious tourists at night while they're looking at the stars and they just, they, they've seen that Daytura plant earlier in the day and they know it's right over there around the corner and they just got to try it. And so I babysat several tourists through their Daytura trip. It's pretty comical, but it's also very scary because eating even a tiny bit of Daytura is dangerous. Let me add that Daytura trips are, are, are anything but fun. All right, let's move on. Mountain Mahogany. Alderleaf Mountain Mahogany is our final plant. It's also known as Palo Duro, which is Spanish for hard stick. So when you see that in some mystical list of magic herbs, Palo Duro is just Alderleaf Mountain Mahogany. The Latin is Cerocarpus montanus or Cerocarpus letifolius. And it's known to the Navajos as a Sasdazi, which means heavy as a rock. This is a shrub that grows up to 20 feet tall with upright spreading branches with reddish brown stems that become pale gray or darker. It blooms in white yellow flowers May through June and its fruit ripens July through September. It has a long feathery tail as it withers and it grows on uh, grows on rocky bluffs, mountain slopes, canyon rims, and open pinyon juniper woodlands at about 4,000 feet to 8,000 feet. And it's often associated with Utah service berries. Mountain mahogany was used to make war clubs, tool handles, and was food for deer and sheep. It was also used to make reddish-brown dye for leather and basketry. Medicinally, the root and the leaves were emetic and used to treat stomach problems and were also used to speed the recovery of newborn mothers. It's also used in five and nine day ceremonies where it's used as an emetic. Okay. To finish up, we're going to complete the story about the two Utes. I gave you the story about the first one. It was the story of old James Stevens, who died in the Colorado State Prison, and he was executed for the death of Mancus Marshal Lynn Dean. 
Turned out that the old man was Mancus Jim. James Stevens was Mancus Jim, the Mancus Jim, the leader of the defiant Avacan Utes and Paiutes, father of Polk, grandfather of Senegat, father of William Posey's wife, Tora, the, the Ute youth who blatantly bragged about the pinhook battle to the town folk of Bluff, the warrior who stood at the top of the Paiute Pass and ridiculed the two dying army posse members as they screamed for rescue and water. He was the Ute chief who served as the go-between for the whites under General Scott in the Bluff Ute standoff of 1915. If you remember the story, as they gassed him at his execution, Stevens let out a war hoop and partially untied his restraints before he died. None of the newspapers identified him as anything other than an old drunk Indian, which says a lot about attitudes in those days. The second Ute has an equally interesting story. In November of 1925, a Ute prisoner of the Colorado State Prison pled guilty to the murder of Mexican prisoner Joseph Chavez. His name was Mormon Joe. Joe was being held in the Cortez jail on a charge of accessory for murder for influencing his son-in-law, Platt Ney, to bury alive Mormon Joe's 17-day-old granddaughter. It seems Joe's daughter had passed away, and Joe, being a respected medicine man, encouraged his son-in-law to bury his 17-day-old daughter alive with his wife. At the time, this act was considered acceptable by the tribe, but it was illegal by the whites, and both Joe and Platinay had been arrested. Platt for murder and Mormon Joe for accessory. Chavez was in the right place at the wrong time when he foolishly teased Joe about being a baby killer. Joe then wrenched a leg off of a jail table and killed Chavez with a single blow to the back of the head. On November 16, 1925, Platt was acquitted on a technicality, but Joe did not fare as well. Two days after killing Chavez, Joe was sentenced to five to 30 years in jail. You know, we've been talking a lot lately about the Utes, so it's about time I think we switch from a focus on the Navajo to focusing a little more on the Utes. And so the next couple of episodes, we're going to be talking about the tribe and some characters from the tribe. And we're going to be talking about the White Mesa Band. The White Mesa Band, or the Wimanooch. The effect of the white wave on the Utes was a little bit different from that on the Navajos. And conditions on the reservation, especially a white mesa in Utah, has been a little, a little tough. There are about 2,000 southern Utes. There are quite a few more northern Utes, and they're located on the Uinta Ure Reservation near Vernal, Utah. They're made up of the Uncompagre, the Grand River, the Yampa, and the Uinta Bands. You might be wondering if the Utes even still speak their own language. 
For now, let me just tell you that the Ute language is Shoshonean, branch of Uto-Aztecan linguistic stock. The Shoshone, the Paiute, the Goshute, and the Northern and Southern Utes also speak Shoshonean. I think you'll find this interesting. Our next story is about canyoneering, and I hope you're uh, you're a canyoneer listening to this. You'll you'll enjoy it, I, I think, because it's the start of a series of, of stories that uh, will catch your interest. Back in 1978, I'd never heard of canyoneering. I didn't know what a canyoneer was. Uh, I don't even think the term had been coined by then. I was a climber, and my mission in life was to climb everything in sight. Meanwhile, on Crete. Uh, where I was living for the Air Force, I was in the Air Force at the time, I, in order to get some extra cash, I was taking tourists down the Aridinus and the Samaria Gorges. But I called that hiking. That was hiking. Unbeknownst to me, though, I did my first major technical canyon that year, and it was a spectacular gouge out of a mountainside that looked like an enormous axe chop. The wall that in future canyoneering terminology would be referred to as Canyon Left uh, was an incredible wall, probably 11 to 1200 feet of almost dead vertical, decently solid limestone. The problem was I could only see its profile and any attempt to examine the face from the bottom would ultimately lead you to having to enter the nasty pool of rancid water that lay at the bottom of the giant gash. Meanwhile, a partner and I had climbed several other routes up the east faces of the right and left blocks. So I, I eventually gathered up an appropriate pile of gear, including a grossly pared down version of my iron, my big iron rack, my, my what they call a Yosemite rack. Uh, also made from, I also made some improvised flotation from bleach bottles and an inner tube. And uh, I had a 300-foot, 3-8-inch gold line, a 75-foot, 5-16-inch gold line, and a friend who agreed to, who, he, was a, he was a caver, and he would tolerate climbing, and we would exchange favors climbing and caving. And he agreed to meet me at the bottom at 4 o'clock or later on a particular day and shuttle me back up to the church up near the summit. And so it was done. And there was no waterfall in there as described by later dissensionists. Just a few pools of nasty foul-smelling bilge and some water grooves on the, on the rock and a few pools and in somewhere in the neighborhood of 20 rappels. I don't remember how many there were exactly. My biggest fear was getting my rope caught, which never happened. Uh, all my poles were successful. Everything went smoothly and I had a I, I, I was able to meet my friend at the bottom, get a ride home, had a long soak in the tub and some wine, and then I went to a Air Force unit dinner in which I drank too much. I remember that night I drank too much wine and I had an impromptu shrimp theater in which, in which one of the uneaten shrimp from my plate played the role of my unit's rather tiny commander. It was soon after that that I found myself 
back in Omaha, flying four 18-hour recons every week. A result of shrimp revenge, I think. Anyway, back to the point. Well, my point was that I was being sucked into a non-existent world of canyoneering because it didn't really exist at the time. I never mentioned it again until about 20 years later when two old climbing buddies took me through the black hole, my friends Pat and Jim. It was beautiful and clean. It was a great trip and I was hooked. And within a year, they had hooked me up with Steve Allen, exploring canyons of the Roost, Robber's Roost and Lake Powell. And that's where I'll stop because this is just where the stories are really going to start. Next podcast, Mutiny on Lake Powell.